The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Here's to the best spring ever in this season's must-have shoes. Find all the styles you need from brands you love at amazing prices. Right now at DSW. Update your closet with colorful sandals made for sunny days, fresh sneakers perfect for spring looks, and sporty soles ready for new adventures. Whatever you're up to this spring, DSW has the exact right pair for the occasion. Shop must-have spring shoes at your DSW store and DSW.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that's living life by the drop. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the captain. That's right, and you know I like to drop it like it's hot. It's good to be seen, and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be drinking best made sour pickle beer brewed in the big, beautiful state of Texas by the brilliant brewers and crew over at Martin House Brewing Company. Captain, this week's case takes us back to Texas, Austin, Texas, once again. And when we were in Austin, several fine, wonderful listeners said to us, hey, while you guys are here, you have to try best made sour pickle beer from Martin House. And these fantastic people were spot on. It's not really sour. Well, no more sour than pickle juice would be. You get a refreshing burst of pickle taste that has kind of an ale or pilsner finish. Garage grade. This one's for the people. Four and a half bottle caps out of five. And here's to our friends that filled up the fridge for us this week. First up, a shout out to Kim and Bree in Splendora, Texas. And a big we like your jib to Brooke in Hilliard, Ohio. And here's a long distance cheers to Stacy in Renton, Washington. She's thanking us for helping her through quarantine. Quarantine, more like boring teen. And a big shout out to Tasha in good old Wisconsin. Next, we have Rebecca in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. And last but certainly not least, we have a very big cheers and thanks that goes out to longtime friend of the show, Paula M. Everyone we just mentioned, they went to truecrimegarage.com and clicked on the donate button. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, say it with me, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run. If you're trying to get a special gift for a loved one for Christmas, go to our store page at truecrimegarage.com. And that is enough of the business all right everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime In the early 1990s, several unforgettable billboards were popping up in and around Austin, Texas. These billboards were not put up with the purpose of advertising for a great restaurant located at the next exit off of Texas Highway 130. And these billboards didn't stare at the passing cars to influence your next cable provider choice. The only purpose for these unforgettable billboards screamed their mission loud and clear with bold white letters, all in caps, set on a red background. Who killed these girls? This was the question on the minds of every red-blooded Texan 
possibly minus one, two, or who knows how many for sure. Because somewhere, maybe in the Lone Star State or across state lines, maybe even south of the border, someone or someones know the answer to that question. Who killed these girls? The question posted on the billboards centered just below what looks to be four school photos. The pictures are of Amy Ayers, Jennifer Harbison, Sarah Harbison, and Eliza Thomas. These are the four victims of an infamous crime known as the Yogurt Shop Murders. The four girls ranged in age from 13 to 17. The Yogurt Shop Murders are a still unsolved quadruple homicide taking place at the local I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop on a Friday night in Austin, Texas. The crimes committed that night were many. They were fast and they were brutal. These girls were killed on December 6, 1991. The unknown assailant or assailants started a fire in the stockroom of the yogurt shop before fleeing into the night. An on-duty patrolman noticed the fire. It was close to midnight. He rushed to the smoke coming from the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt located in a strip plaza. 2949 West Anderson Lane. He called it into dispatch. Firefighters arrived on the scene and began knocking the fire down. Once they entered the small Northwest Austin yogurt shop, one firefighter motioned to the other, pointing to a charred foot, and then they started finding bodies. Austin police were called, and the lone homicide detective working that night got the call that no one wants to receive, even the most seasoned of detectives. Two fatalities, suspected arson, suspected homicide, looks like gunshot wounds, the dispatcher called out over the police radio. APD Sergeant John Jones was en route. Minutes later, the dispatcher tells Jones they found another body, and as he drives closer, a cop at the scene radioed, Jonesy, make that four. On the scene, Jones got to work. The following is from the 2016 Beverly Lowry book titled, Who Killed These Girls? Ignoring the firefighters who either milled around or just stood there looking down, Jones stepped gingerly around the bodies. Having been schooled in evidence collection and processing, he felt competent to handle 95% of most crime scenes. But this one lie well beyond his expertise. In a memo to the district attorney's office, he will describe the situation as robbery plus sexual assault plus multiple child victims plus bondage plus gunshot wounds plus fire, heat, smoke, water damage plus no known witnesses equal the homicide, arson, and DA's worst nightmare. This is True Crime Garage, and this is a new look at the Yogurt Shop Murders case 30 years later. Later this week will mark 30 years since some kind of monster or monsters committed the horrific yogurt shop murders, and the Austin Police Department and the FBI are still on the hunt for those responsible. Some of the following was taken from a recent ReportingTexas.com article. The four teenage girls were brutally murdered on a Friday night at a yogurt shop in North Austin in December of 1991. The girls' families and those who worked decades trying to find and prosecute their killers say the 30th anniversary of their murders approaches with no sense of closure. The murders remain unsolved, and experts say that crimes lacking resolution can leave a psychological impact on an entire community. But new state and federal efforts, as well as a promising DNA lead, have brought renewed hope for answers and justice. The details of the crime, including the subsequent investigation and criminal trials that followed, have been well documented. Jennifer Harbison and Eliza Thomas, both 17, 
worked at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt on West Anderson Lane. Jennifer's sister, Sarah Harbison, 15, and Amy Ayers, 13, arrived at the yogurt shop around closing time on December 6, 1991, with plans to attend a sleepover together. Amy was an 8th grader at Burnett Middle School, and the other girls attended Lanier High School. They were shot in the head and gagged with their own clothes. Their bodies were stacked on top of one another before being set on fire. Authorities arrested four suspects, but this was almost eight years later in October of 1999. Only two of the four, Robert Burns Springsteen and Michael James Scott, stood trial, and both were convicted. Springsteen received the death penalty, and Scott got life in prison. But the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturned their convictions, ruling that their confessions were improperly used against each other at trial. Springsteen and Scott were released from prison, and prosecutors dismissed all charges against them. In 2017, another potential breakthrough emerged. An Austin detective submitted DNA evidence found in one of the victims into a database that searches YSTR DNA samples, a type of DNA profile that forensic investigators use to identify male relatives of suspects. A match was found. The Austin Police Department requested more information about the identity of the matching donor, but the FBI has refused to release any information, saying a federal statute prohibits it from disclosing identities of anonymous donors. Despite these hurdles, the families have continued to work to keep the case in the forefront. Their efforts have led to new crime-fighting initiatives at the state and federal levels. Quote, when I heard there were over 19,000 unsolved homicides in Texas, I was really taken aback by that. And I think most people are when they hear that number. When you think about each of those cases, there's a family associated with that, said Mindy Montford, who was the first assistant district attorney for Travis County and one of the prosecutors assigned to the yogurt shop murders case for four years. The yogurt shop murders led Montford to work with Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton to form the state cold case and missing persons unit on October 19th. The unit will aid and support law enforcement agencies across the state in the investigation and prosecution of unsolved cases. Montford serves as senior counsel for the unit. Angie and Sean Ayers, the brother of the youngest victim, sit on its advisory committee. The yogurt shop victims' families have been pushing to effect change on a national level. In May of 2021, the Bipartisan Homicide Victims' Families' Rights Act was reintroduced. U.S. Representative Mike McCall said, quote, If a case has been cold for three years, it gives the victims the right to petition the local district attorney to reexamine the cold case and take another look at it. It's very much empowering to the families of the victims, and particularly the case like the yogurt shop killings. Many remember the yogurt shop murders as a defining moment in Austin, which was about half its current size and not yet a tech or tourist hub. The 30th anniversary of the yogurt shop murders brings up painful memories for those who tried to solve the crime. Austin Police Sergeant John Jones who was the lead investigator assigned to the case at the time of the murders, said, quote, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Then there shouldn't be any limitation on doing what one can to try to get it solved, and that sometimes means having to relive that pain and answer questions. My theory is, if me talking about it to you or anybody else can jog somebody's memory out there to perhaps get this thing solved, then it's worth reliving that night. The girls' families believe that the case will be solved, and we here in the garage hope so as well. We covered this case rather extensively in early 2017 in True Crime Garage episodes 81 and 82. Now, you don't need to stop these episodes and go back. These episodes with this information and Nick's research will stand on its own. Yeah, just know that this week's shows will be different from those episodes, and they are there to listen to should you want to hear the case as it were 
back in early 2017. Then, Captain, we gave a detailed description of the events and the facts of the case, followed by the arrest of four persons nearly eight years later. Two were convicted because they, air quotes here, confessed, and the two others saw their charges dropped due to a lack of evidence. Rob Springsteen and Michael James Scott, as we said, both went to prison. Rob sentenced to death, Michael to life imprisonment. They both confessed that they, along with Maurice Pierce and Forrest Wilborn, went to rob the store and killed all four girls. The strange thing here is obvious. The two that ended up with charges dropped due to insufficient evidence did not confess. Yet if we were to believe that the confessions of the two that the state convicted are correct, well, then all four are guilty of the yogurt shop murders. So to me, Captain, I've always felt like this should be an all-or-nothing situation for these four suspects. Absolutely. It's almost as if the prosecution didn't believe law enforcement's confessions that they received. Now, when we covered the case, we spent a lot of time covering the case against these four individuals, the two trials, and later their release. We won't spend a lot of time on that this time around. We also covered some other good suspects and spent a lot of time on what is most likely the best theory out there. So as you can see, this is a rather large case, not a short true crime story at all. And Captain, I like the cut of our jib because I think those episodes were really well done and we told as much of the story as you can in just two episodes. And now, as we are approaching the 30-year marker, well, this is a really good time to revisit the yogurt shop. Let's dive into the facts of this case and the timeline that goes with it. We're going to include some angles, theories, and leads that perhaps were not pursued as doggedly as the four men that were arrested, who were just teenagers themselves at the time of the murders. Yes, but first, some background information. Bryce Foods is the company that owns the ICBY store. I can't believe it's yogurt store. And they own dozens of them. Bryce Foods by 1991, had been in business for 14 years. And the Bryce Foods firm was started by brother and sister Bill and Julie Bryce from Dallas. In 1977, Bryce Foods purchased existing yogurt shops. I'm not sure, Captain, if this location is one of their original stores. As said, they owned many. This location, though, we know that by 1991 has been around for years, and only two of the four girls that were killed worked there. One of the victims, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, started working there in early 1991. It's either January or early February. And her friend, Sarah Harbison, started working there in July of 1991. The two were friends, and they both attended the same high school. Well, since we've been doing this for five years, it seems like every time around December, when it starts and you start feeling that Christmas holiday, there's a couple cases that always come to mind, obviously, the John Bonet Ramsey case, and then this case happening on December 6, 1991. At 6.30 p.m., Eliza arrives home and is getting ready to make her drive to the ICBY store. She was there by 7 p.m. She worked the night before and was said that she had a difficult shift that night before due to a prank phone call from her ex-boyfriend, Roger Carducci, and one of his pals. So at 7 p.m., Eliza is replacing another employee. Jorge Barney is closing his store. Mind you, this is like a shopping plaza, so there we're going to reference some other stores that are nearby throughout this case and timeline. Jorge Barney is closing his store, The Party House, He's the owner of the store. He's owned it for three months at this time. He has a Santa on the roof because this is a, you know, the party house is where you're going to go to get decorations and things for party planning and such. And with the Christmas holiday coming up, he's got Santa on the roof and other decorations going on. He walks three stores down to another store. This is called Mr. Gaddy's. And he says that he went there to get some pizza. It's a pizza place. From there, he will take his pizza to go back to his store in his office to eat and do some bookkeeping and watch some TV. He's important because his office shares a wall with the stock room at the ICBY shop. 
Eliza, once she arrives and she gets into work, she places her personal belongings in the store's office, which is located in the back of the store, in the area we will refer to as the stock room. This stock room is the room behind the sales counter, which is located in the dining room. The stock room has a walk-in cooler, two bathrooms, one designated as men's and the other as ladies, and the shop's small office in this back corner. The office has a locked door and a floor safe. There is a back door to the shop, which is located near the door to the office. From my understanding, Captain, that back door to the store is locked via deadbolt, and the manager has the only key to this back door. That's key to know because this back door is not used often when the manager with the key is not there. Because this case is so perplexing, it's been investigated by several detectives and several crime shows. So I will post all the pictures that I think are relevant to seeing the outside of the building. And there's also a couple diagrams of inside the building. Obviously, we'll post those on social media at True Crime Garage, Twitter, Facebook, or even at the website. And the captain's really doing everybody a big service by doing that because I think it's important here, as is in most cases. But in this case, it's particularly important to understand the layout of this store because we will be talking about the movements of not only suspects, but our victims as well. Well, and anybody that's worked at a shop knows that you have closing time duties that you start preparing, even though customers are still in the store. So I think that becomes very important in this case. Yes, we're going to want to keep an eye on several things. The events leading up to that closing time, as well as those closing duties like you just pointed out, as well as the customers that are coming and going from the shop leading up to closing time. Now, after placing her personal belongings in the yogurt shop's locked office, Eliza will then return the office door key to its designated location, which is under the cash register. Later, Eliza Thomas's personal belongings will be found inside the locked office. Eliza, at this point in our timeline, Captain, she is going to be running the store by herself until 8 p.m. This is when her shift mate, Jennifer Harbison, arrives for the closing shift. Before arriving at the shop for her 8 p.m. shift, Jennifer Harbison will drive her sister Sarah, age 15, and her friend Amy Ayers, age 13, to the North Cross Mall so they can hang out with some friends. We should also note for those not familiar with Austin, the North Cross Mall is relatively close to the yogurt shop. I believe it's less than one mile from the yogurt shop. Note their ages as well. 13 and 15. Right. One of the parents would later say that this was the first time that the two good friends were allowed to go to the mall by themselves. I think we all can look back and remember one of those days, right, Captain, when you're a young teenager and maybe it's the first time that you and a friend are allowed to go somewhere without any type of adult supervision and you're you're going to the location being driven by your friend's older brother or older sister who's dropping you off. It feels very adult-like, right? It feels very special to those at that time. And I'm sure that's how Amy and Sarah felt on this Friday night. Yeah, I remember being dropped off at the cinema and being able to play a couple arcade games before we watched the movie. But you're basically just going into a building watching a movie and coming out. It was more rare if they would let you walk around and look at different multiple shops. Jennifer does everything that we just said, and then she arrives at the ICBY store just before her 8 p.m. shift. She parks her vehicle next to Eliza Thomas's vehicle. Eliza will be running the register, and Jennifer will be taking and filling orders. The store closes at 11 p.m., Bryce Foods, the company, has a pretty detailed closing procedures for the employees. And this is important here because of these closing duties and Jennifer Harbison's and Eliza Thomas's work ethic. 
we will get a really good idea of when things went down and how things may have gone down. This is because everyone has stated that Eliza and Jennifer carried out the closing duties to a T, completing each task in the very specific order designated by the Bryce Foods Company. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. 
Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. We're back. If you're not signed up on the mailing list, make sure you go to truecrimegarage.com and sign up on the mailing list. And the next week or so, we'll be sending out a nice little promo code for the store page. So if you're not signed up, get signed up today. All the cool kids are doing it. Yes. Cheers to you, Captain. Cheers. All right, Colonel, why don't you go through a list of the closing duties? The yogurt shop closes at 11 p.m. So starting at 10 till 11, the person's working that night, they will lock the front door from the inside. Then they will change the sign from open to closed, and they will leave the key in the lock in the door. This is done at this time regardless if there are any remaining customers in the store or not. Then they would deposit the money in the floor safe that is in the locked office and then clean up the store. When the store is completely clean, they would remove the key that's in the front door, leave through the front door. Then they would lock the door from the outside, place the key inside of an envelope, and then slide that envelope under the front door. The manager with a key to the store opens the store in the morning and then retrieves the envelope and the key when they arrive. Let's get into some of the ICBY customer testimonials and some of the events that we know happened that night. We have customer Lucilla Jones, who arrives at the yogurt shop and says that when she entered the store, she noticed two teenage boys seated at the table nearest the door. They were approximately between the ages of 14 and 17. And she says they had a sort of hippie look to them. She describes one of them as being between five foot four and five foot seven inches tall with medium dark hair, 130 to 140 pounds, possibly Hispanic or Anglo. She does not see the face of the other. So no description of him is given other than he looks to be older and larger than the other boy that she just described. She would give three different descriptions of the table throughout the course of the events. There will be a trial in the last 30 years. One of these descriptions says that the boys were focusing in on something that may have been a paper bag centered on the table. Another description that she gives says that she did not see any containers on the table. And then the third description says she did not have a clear view of the table itself. She says that these boys gave her an uneasy feeling and she didn't think that the boys fit the quote normal yogurt shop customers. She orders a yogurt and pays by check and then leaves the store. Now we are at 9 p.m. here, Captain. This is when Jennifer Harbison leaves the yogurt shop. She has to go back and pick up her sister Sarah and her friend Amy from their visit to the mall. When the three return, Sarah and Amy walk over to Mr. Gaddy's to get some pizza. The mall closed at 9 p.m. and Mr. Gaddy's closes at 10 p.m. So we are very confident with the times that are provided here. At 9.30 p.m., Maria Thomas, Eliza's mother, arrives at the yogurt shop. Eliza takes a phone call from her younger sister and at some point gives the phone to her mother. 
Amy and Sarah then arrive at the yogurt shop with their takeout pizza. Shortly after this, Jennifer is going to receive a phone call from her boyfriend, Sammy Buchanan. Around the same time, a man named Daryl Croft arrives at the yogurt shop. He puts his arrival time between 9.30 and 10 p.m. He is traveling with two women who stay in Croft's vehicle. Croft goes into order to go desserts for all three of them. He says that when he walks into the yogurt shop, he sees two girls working behind the counter. Maria, again, this is Eliza's mother, is standing near the counter. There's a man and a woman reviewing the menu standing in front of the counter. A young couple is seated at one of the booths on the right-hand side of the dining room, and there's a young man in a green army-type jacket. This young man is near the counter and near the couple reviewing the menu. Right. He later would describe this young man as early to mid-20s, medium build, 150 to 170 pounds, between 5 foot 10 and 6 foot tall, and Caucasian. He says there was something off about this man. There are two differing descriptions of what this man says and does while in the store. One in Beverly Lowry's book, Who Killed These Girls? And another in the book, Murdered Innocence by Corey Mitchell. Both of these books are very thorough and very good. Anyone that is fascinated by this case should read both of them. But rather than ordering... The young man says to Croft, you go first. And then there is this weird, awkward exchange where the two men keep offering to allow the other to go first. You go first. You go first. No, you go first. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You were here before me. (laughs) It's like Andy and Dwight in that episode where they just kept doing each other favors over and over again. It's weird to me that he has an uneasy feeling from this gentleman that's letting him go first. The guy in the army jacket is obviously not in a rush and obviously trying to be polite. Well, I think what we need to keep in mind here is we are reviewing all of these customers and their statements after the fact. And they're giving these statements to police after the murders occurred. So I'm thinking what we have here, Captain, in most of these situations is people are going about their everyday lives. These are all very routine acts. Uh, This Daryl Croft individual, he was a regular at the yogurt shop. A lot of the customers coming in that night were regulars to this yogurt shop. And so I think when you have regulars, one, they seem to notice more that's going on because they're aware that, you know, this visit's a little different than last one. This time they're really busy. This time they're not. Right. I don't think that most of these people are walking into the yogurt shop that night, observing what's going on and going, Ooh, something, something terrible is here. I feel, I I sense a presence, a bad element. Something's brewing. I think that it's, you know, we know what happened. And when I left or later that night, or now that I know the outcome, now that I know that four girls were killed here, I remember this guy, something was off about him. Something was weird about this guy, and we're looking for somebody who killed four people. And so here is my information. And Daryl Croft, again, he's a regular to the yogurt shop. He was a security guard at the time. He owned a security company. A lot of times these individuals will be hypervigilant. They will be extra aware of their surroundings and take mental note of their surroundings. So he, to me can offer up possibly some better information than maybe just the average Jane or Joe walking into the shop that night. Well, and he's coming in, like you said, between 930 and 10. So this is getting close to closing time. My big issue is it's December 6th. Yes, I understand that it's in Texas, but it seems like there's quite a bit of pockets of people. seems like there's quite a bit of people towards the end of the day. Yeah, so you're going to have this for several reasons. One, it's a Friday night, and the yogurt shop is open till 11 p.m. Yeah, good point. So this is going to offer up traffic to this store when other stores are closing for the night. Remember, we already pointed out that Mr. Gaddy's, the pizza place, closes at 10. Well, and the mall closes at 9. mall closes at 9. So we have customers that are coming in, maybe from Mr. Gaddy's after pizza. They want a little dessert. 
They want the yogurt shop dessert. Maybe people are leaving a movie. We have several customers that we know went to movies that night and decided to get a dessert on the way home. A lot of these customers, too, you're going to see some stay there to eat their frozen treats at the shop, but also a lot of them are taking things to go. Mm -hmm. They're going in, placing their order, paying for them, and they're leaving. And that's what Daryl Croft was doing here that night. I think I have in my notes here, and I can't remember where I got this from, but I think that he he and these other people, they were, they were at either out that night and decided to stop for dessert or he knew Eliza Thomas and Eliza Thomas's mother as well. So that's interesting too, that he knows some of the people in the store when he's walking into it. Uh, he knows them very, very loosely. They're like acquaintances because they went to the same gym. So Daryl Croft, again, a regular to the shop, security guard, security company owner. Remember we said that there will be trials because we know that two individuals were convicted in this case and later they were released. But at the trial, Croft testified that he visited the shop around 10 p.m. that night. In line in front of him was a suspicious-looking man dressed in a green army jacket. The man asked him about his security guard car, which was parked out front. This is part of that weird exchange where this man sees Croft's vehicle and says, you know, what are you, some kind of cop? Right. Which Croft, that kind of tickled his spidey sense a little bit because he's like, why is this guy so observant and paying so much attention to me and my vehicle and my vehicle has these lights on it? Who is this kid to question me? And so the man asked him about his security guard car, which was parked out front, and then insisted that Croft should cut in front of him. Now, finally, Croft said that the man slipped into the back, headed to what he thought would be the bathroom. This is another reason why I think Croft has a vivid memory of this guy. He walks into a busy yogurt shop, sees all these customers. And this is the only individual that he's going to see go into the back room. Now, right. remember, the restrooms are back there, so that's the assumption that Croft is going to make. Well, also, it seems like there's pairs of people, and we don't know if this army shirt or army jacket guy is connected to the couple that he was closest to. It almost seems like he's in there by himself. Yes, everything that goes on would give the appearance that this man is in there by himself. So Croft says that the man gave him such a funny feeling that he decided to kind of stick around, like linger a bit mm -hmm. to see the man return from the back room. But eventually, you know, he's handed his three desserts that he's ordered. He's paid. He's made some chit chat, tried to hang out a little bit, but eventually Croft will leave. Now Croft could not identify the suspicious man he saw as being any of the four suspects that were later arrested and two convicted. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting to me. Croft is sure that he was there at 10 PM based off of his testimony. And later when shown pictures of the four guys that were arrested, Maurice, Michael, Robert, and Forrest, again, Croft does not match the suspicious person to any of the four. Now, from the book, Who Killed These Girls, Croft says of Green Army Jacket Man, his voice was deep, clear, and distinctive, and that he has a long, pointy nose. Army Jacket Man then ordered a 7-Up, and Eliza explains that they only have Sprite, and so he orders a Sprite. This before dipping into the back room with the assumption that he went to the restroom. Right. At 10 p.m., James Thomas... This is Eliza Thomas's father stops by the yogurt shop and says that he sees all four girls there in the store at that time. Is he stopping by just to check in on his kids? You know, sometimes that happens where your parents just drop in on you at work when you're a teenager or is he getting yogurt? This I don't know. I do know that both he and his wife stopped by that night. His wife was there just minutes before. I think they're traveling separate and I don't know if James was in the process of picking up Eliza's younger sister right. who had called earlier that night. 
I think that there was some chance here, Captain, that Eliza's sister was going to find her way to the yogurt shop. And maybe one of the parents or both of the parents were going to retrieve her there. But they very likely stopped in as customers and to see their daughter. At 10.42 p.m., Eliza Thomas rings in the last purchase of the night. Okay? Underline that. Make mental note. Don't forget. 10.42 p.m., Eliza rings in the last purchase of the night. Yeah, 18 minutes before closing. We have our customers' names. This is Tim Stryker and Margaret Sheehan. They will later say that when they get there, they notice only two other customers in the store. So by this point in our timeline, right, we have James Thomas, we have the security guard man, Daryl Croft. All these people have left the store by this time. By this point, we have two coming in, two customers coming in, Tim Stryker and Margaret Sheehan. They say that when they arrived in the store, they only noticed two other customers in the store at that time. And they would later describe them as large people in hooded jackets sitting in the last booth on the left. This is the booth nearest the cash register. They said that they saw Eliza behind the counter. She's the one that took and fulfilled their order. Right. And they see Jennifer cleaning the dining room. She's wiping tables, refilling napkin holders, and placing chairs on the tables. Margaret Sheehan does not get a good look at these two customers, the two that are described as large people in hooded jackets. I'm assuming they're just, they have hoods on their jackets, but their hoods are not up. This description I'm giving, Captain, is the best one that I have found. It's, it's extremely vague and limited, but I actually think given some other things that I've seen along the way that, that potentially they have these hoods up that they're wearing the hoods. Well, Cause that's pretty suspicious. So Margaret Sheehan does not get a good look at these two customers. In fact, she says that she's not even certain of the gender for either, but based off of their size, she believes that they were both males. She says one was larger than the other and the larger one was wearing a khaki or beige-colored padded jacket. The other man, if it was a man, the other large person, let's say, was thinner with light brown hair. She does not remember seeing any food or drink or containers on the table where the two were sitting. Margaret says that she and Tim left the store, and when they did... She looked at her watch, and it was 10.47 p.m. So it took them five minutes to place their order, get their yogurt. They sat down briefly and mm-hmm. then decided to take their desserts with them. But five minutes being in a store with it when there's only four individuals working and only two customers other than you and your date, that's a long time to get a perspective of what's happening and to kind of sense what's going on with inside that shop. That's right. And note again, the time she says was 10 47 PM when they left. We also have, when it comes to a lot of these customers, well, all of them, anyone that ordered something and paid for something, we will have the register tape later. That's going to kind of give us a timeline of some events as well. But we don't know if these two large individuals had any, dessert with them or any all we know is that they're at a booth they're at a table it it doesn't mean that they're eating anything exactly in fact we have margaret who says one i didn't get a good look at them right here's what i do remember and goes out of her way to say i don't remember seeing any food drink or containers on their table well and this would be like you said three minutes they're leaving three minutes before they're going to go put that key in that door and, and lock the door Yes. Again, this is 1047 PM. And she says that when she and Tim left, the two people sitting in the booth nearest the cash register were still in the store. Margaret says when she arrived and when she left that she noticed a green car in the parking lot. This green car is a tricky little piece of information as we don't know if this is a suspect vehicle Right. Or a car with no real significance to the murders at all. Yeah, tricky little piece of shit. 
or if it was one of the girls' vehicles. Because we know that Eliza drove a bright green Carmen Ghia. Right. This is a pisser here, Captain. And in my opinion, a bit of a stumble in the investigation. Because we can't say if this is a suspect car or Eliza's or a vehicle that has nothing to do with the murders at all. Well, but maybe law enforcement knows and they just haven't shared that information with the public. This thing went to trial twice. Right. There's That's your time to share information with the public. When you're going to sentence a man to death and another to life imprisonment, let's lay out the facts of the case. Yeah, but they also charged two individuals that confessed that all four people were involved and they only charged two people. Here, here's a stumble in the case, in my opinion, because if we, if we truly are still on the hunt for the individuals responsible for these murders, yeah. this is could be important information. Again, I don't think until we have somebody locked up and the proper person convicted that we will know for certain if the suspect drove or suspect drove a or suspects drove a green vehicle that night. But the reason why I say that it's a stumble is we could at least eliminate one possibility. And one possibility is that it's Eliza's bright green Carmen Ghia. A Carmen Ghia is a unique-looking vehicle. I would have shown Margaret a picture of Eliza's Carmen Ghia and at the very least tried to confirm or rule out that as a possibility. Well, I agree with you because that makes the most logical sense. Now, we don't know, Captain, what happens in the next three minutes. So our two customers left at 1047. They say that there are two male customers left in the store sitting at that booth nearest to the cash register at the time that they left. We don't know if these men left or if these men stayed there and are responsible for the four murders. What we do know is within the next hour, that's six zero minutes, all four of the teenage girls will be killed. Yeah, so for the next 60 minutes, a lot of horrible shit's going to happen. One thing we don't know for certain, but can assume based off of manager and coworker statements, Eliza and Jennifer followed the closing procedures to a T and add to that equation that the two workers are teens, right? It's late on a Friday night. They're going to want to get everything done and get out of there with the quickness. So according to the closing duties, the girls would have at 10 till 11 o'clock locked the front door from the inside whether or not the store was void of customers and then flipped the sign from open to close and then continued with their closing duties now our customers that left at 10:47 did not say that they saw the two younger girls they only said that they saw the two older girls that were working at the shop that night it's presumed that Amy and Sarah went to the back room. We assume this for two reasons. One, it was understood that Sarah would be helping her older sister with the closing duties that night in exchange for Jennifer driving her and Amy around. Amy was scheduled to ride home with the Harbison sisters and stay the night at their house that night. The second reason is later at the crime scene, the Mr. Gaddy's pizza box is found in the back room. At 11.03 p.m., a no sale was rang in on the register. Anyone who has worked a register is familiar with the no sale key. You push it and it logs a no sale on the register tape and then the register drawer opens up. So this would be recorded on the register. And as we said, when we covered this case four years ago, it's believed that this may be the start of the robbery and the start of the horrible events to come. Well, there's a lot of evidence where we could go through and and talk about what we think could have happened. But let's go through some more events that we know for sure happened. Okay. At 1147 PM, rookie Austin PD officer, Troy gay reports seeing smoke coming from the rear of the ICBY store at 1153. The first truck arrives from the Austin fire department. The response time note is six minutes, which is longer than normal here. But at first 
it looks like they were going to the wrong address and then the address was corrected on the call while en route. One minute later, a second fire engine and then at 11.57 p.m. another fire engine arrives. In total, Captain, we're going to have nearly 50 firefighters on scene that will respond to this call. Yeah. Later, when the bodies are found, they will also find Jennifer Harbison's Timex watch. Not on her. She took this off when she and the others were ordered to strip by their killers. Her watch stopped, marking the time at 11.48 p.m. when the watch quit working because of the fire. Now, some other things were found as well that helped to fill in the blanks for us as to what actually happened from 11.03 to the time that the firefighters are on the scene. So a couple of things here, Captain. One, someone started to clean out the yogurt dispensers but did not finish. One of the girls was wiping the counter but did not finish. Right. A can of Coca-Cola and a cup of ice is later found on the counter. The booth where Margaret Sheehan says the two men were sitting when she and Tim Stryker left the yogurt shop at 10.47 p.m., is the only table in the store's front of the house that does not have a chair on it. The chair is the universal signal that the table has been cleaned, stocked, and closed. Yes. This table has an empty napkin holder. The other tables have napkin holders that have been filled. Well, that tells us something, though, right? The other tables have been cleaned, restocked, and closed. So maybe not 100%, but that could mean that these individuals were still in the shop when the other duties were stopped. Possibly. It tells us it tells us this, that the, those three items are all things that should have been completed if they were able to finish their closing duties. Right. So whatever happened, however it happened, it took place before these three items could be closed out for the night. The yogurt dispensers were not finished being cleaned. The counter was not finished being wiped down. And that table was not closed out for the night indicating either they didn't get to that table or as you said, somebody was sitting there, which prevented them from getting to the table. The fifth thing that I want to point out here is that the register drawer was found open and the till removed. The till was found on the floor in the back room next to Amy Ayers' body. How much money was taken? Money taken is an interesting question because when reviewing this case and reviewing the way that it was handled, the investigation was handled, it looks to me like robbery was the genesis of everything to come. That's what they are telling us. They being law enforcement and they being the investigators that have worked this case from Jump Street. To me, I see something very different. I see a situation where money was involved and part of the crimes committed but I don't know if it's the genesis. I don't know if it's where this whole attack and the whole nightmare began. Because when I'm looking at a picture of the crime scene, it says next to the picture, police discovered this register both open and empty with an open bag containing money underneath. So directly under the cash register, visible to the naked eye, is a bag that contains money. That's just sitting there. It's still sitting there the next day while investigators are going through the crime scene. Right. Now, one item that's also in the cash register that's visible, again, the register drawer is open. The till has been removed. They will find the till along with scattered change next to the body of Amy Ayers in the stock room. But you can see a check that's still sitting in the register. Anybody that's operated a register knows that there are certain items that you do not put in the till. You put them underneath the till, but inside the register drawer. Things get really complicated here because I wouldn't expect a person in a robbery to want to grab a check, take the check with them, and then later have to cash it somewhere, especially when we know that the check is for a small amount. This was a customer check, somebody that paid for their yogurt that night using a check. Oh, you, didn't you say that one lady paid for her yogurt? Her and her date's yogurt, correct. So there was checks left behind 
And there was also a bag of money underneath the cash register that was not even touched. They did take some money, and I have in my notes here, and I don't know where this information came from. I was trying to track this down last night, so I want everybody to take this with a grain of salt. But I have in my notes that $540 is what was determined to be missing from that night. Again, though, one thing that this tells me is either cash is not the main concern for the offenders or they didn't go around to the back of the counter because this bag of money, and I don't know how much money is in it, but there's paper money that's visible at the top of this bag. They didn't bother to take that. So either they didn't see it by going around to the back of the counter or money was not the main concern for them. Yeah, I agree. Later, the detectives would review the closing duties with Bryce Foods Company. And this is important here because, as we said, it's clear that they were not finished closing for the night. The door may have been locked. The sales may have been done for the day. But the girls were still working when whatever happened went down. Now, Bryce Foods is not trying to sway any type of opinion. They're just simply trying to offer up an alternative here. And one being that the no sale button being pushed at 1103 may not have been the start of the robbery, but could simply have been the start of one of the girls closing out the register. Another thing that they offered up was that the Coca-Cola can and the cup of ice found on the counter could have belonged to one of the girls that after closing for the night, they decided to get themselves a drink and set this down on the counter. And then things got bad from there. Right. I appreciate the additional information and the thoroughness of Bryce foods and their involvement in the investigation. But the problem with those two thoughts are a couple of things. We already mentioned the yogurt dispensers, Someone started cleaning them out, but did not finish. We also mentioned the counter. Somebody was wiping down the counter, but did not finish. This, to me, indicates that we got two girls working, two girls trying to complete these closing duties, and both of them are interrupted simultaneously. So I think we have a situation where very likely the 1103 pressing of the no sale key is probably the start of the robbery. And this probably took place... Shortly after one individual orders a Coca-Cola and a, a cup of ice, sets it down on the counter, girl turns around, gun in the face, open up the register. This is a robbery. Right. From there, they're probably going to usher all of the girls into the back. And I say probably because we do not know. We do not know the point of entry for the attackers. Because at this point, we have three possibilities. One would be the front door. However, the front door is locked. So we can go ahead and cross that one out. But if our killers came through the front door, that means they came through that front door before the girls locked it at 10 till 11 that night. And that means it was the two guys sitting in the booth or the state's case against the four guys that they would later arrest eight years later was that the killers came in through the back of the house through that back door that Robert Springsteen at some point went into the shop and wedged the back door open using, I think it was a empty pack of cigarettes. And in his confession states that he Jimmy rigged that door so that it would remain open, that you could pull it open from the outside, gaining access to the store from the back. But it was positioned in a way that persons from the inside, it would not be obvious to them that the door was not closed, not latched, not locked. Right. This is still possible. However, this begs the question, well, then why didn't the perpetrator take that bag of money? Because now if you have our killers, our attackers, our robbers, our, our robbers, and we're told that the genesis of everything that's about to happen starts from a planned robbery from these four young men, still boys at this time, that they entered through the back with the main purpose of robbery and then went to the front, approached the girls, and went to the register 
and started taking the till and money from the register. The problem with that is then why didn't they take that bag of money that was sitting underneath the register? I don't think that the robbers slash killers ever saw that bag of money. I think that the attack came from the other side of the counter. The girls were surprised and the girls were corralled into the back of the store to where our killers then discovered two additional girls or knew that they were already back there. Well, this crime could have been committed by one individual, two individuals, or, or, or possibly more. I think sometimes people lean to the fact that there was four attackers involved because we have four victims. I would actually lean towards less, uh, two individuals, even possibly one, because if that back door is locked, if you're in, if you're in that building before, before they lock that door with a weapon or with a gun, you can easily control that situation. Yes. And there's evidence at the scene that will suggest that the number of attackers was either two or three persons. So much more to get to. Meet us back here in the garage tomorrow. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. When you say, when you say.